from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 51, recorded August the 24th, 2023, and it's brought to you by our sponsors, Factor and Call Sheet. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and with me, as always, is the director of strategy, both here and at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Julia, hi, how you doing? Hey, Jason, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, summer, still here. It- still here it's it's so funny all the clients that we have um in europe i forget that like france shuts down yeah like it's just there's they don't they just stop working and i was like we got right i was like we need to adapt this in the united states i agree it's uh ridiculous uh i was talking to mike hurley at some point um one of the co-founders of real afm and he was mentioning his bank that he used to work at where they had like 30 days off a year (laughs) It's just like, whoa, Americans don't understand this at all. Um, So a a lot to talk about, um, including we we do, uh, we should have a sports corner this time, but we are um, making our plans for our all sports corner episode. It will happen next month. We promise. So exciting. So exciting. But I wanted to dive into uh, first some follow up for our favorite show defining the topic that will always be associated with this podcast, which is CNN on streaming story today from Variety that CNN, you remember CNN plus well, CNN on Max is coming. Um, They're working on developing some programs from CNN that will be appearing on the Max streaming service, according to Variety. A, uh, a a variety of uh, CNN hosts will contribute to the effort, including Christian Amanpour. Um, so they are trying to create some shows that will stream on uh, on Max from the CNN brand as another way to find out how portable they, they can make the CNN brand and get it into the streaming world. What do you think about uh, David Zaslav's take on um on the old take. It's like new take, old take. It's back again. We just had to wait two years and, and it's back again. What a redemption moment for Jason Kalar, oh, huh? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, if you're Jason right now, are you just like, I wonder how you feel if you're Jason Kalar? Yeah, it's like, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In- idea. Interesting idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. You're like, mm. anyways, uh, <laughs> I, um, here's my, my concern. So, they're doing a 24-hour, seven days a week news cycle. As Jason pointed out, this is not necessarily going to be CNN lifted. There will be some CNN. So the big kind of block of shows that I think we associate with CNN, the the uh, Anderson Cooper of it all, Caitlin Collins of it all, like that will be on the on the Max version, which is great, I suppose. I think the real issue is that news at that scale isn't really going to pivot as well to streaming. I think what made news attractive to an extent in the pay TV bundle or even just as a broadcaster was twofold. One, if you got your news on broadcast, typically you're interested in local news. And so you were like at whether it was 6 p.m., 3 p.m., noon, whatever it was in the morning, you know, you sat down and you got your local news and CNN's not going to replace that. So people are still going to turn to their local broadcasters who are making 
waves already in news on streaming. You look at NBC, right? Like the CBS, who have already kind of figured this out with Peacock and Paramount Plus. Um, and I do know people anecdotally, so this is just an anecdotal piece of, of information, who do actually open up Peacock and Paramount Plus because they want local news. And so they cut, they cut the core, they don't want it, but now they've got that. So Sienna doesn't solve for that problem. The other issue, which in the Variety article that was kind of talking about this, where they interviewed the uh, head of streaming at, at Max, when they they kind of get to it with, with the products out of the equation, within a pay TV bundle, you could channel surf, right? So you could go to news for five minutes, and you could go to something else, and you're like, you just flip back and forth. That's what made it great. In streaming, you can do this as well, but because everything is siloed off in a certain way, because everything is made one step more difficult to actually access, unless it's front of mind, unless you're purposely opening up HBO Max to go to CNN, it's not really a thing that I think that most people are going to drift toward. They're going to drift toward whatever is being promoted in their home feed or whatever show they're already watching. In the Variety article, they note, and Jason, interested in your thoughts on this, which I think is really smart, that they are going to figure out ways to kind of break into programming that you may be watching on Max if there's breaking news, right? So if you're watching uh, Succession and then all of a sudden Russia invades Ukraine, I'm thinking of like, what's something that's really big? Then it would come up basically as what I imagine is like a banner kind of uh, on your on your streaming service, on your what you're watching and say, hey, this is breaking news. Click over to HBO Max, uh, click over to CNN on Max rather so that you can watch it. If anyone has grown up with uh, news on broadcast when they're watching TV shows or has any or, or seen the president cut into their feed to make a message like this is not new. This is like what they've done forever. But it's interesting to think about doing it within a streaming world where news has been so divorced from the concept of what you're of the entertainment that you're consuming in streaming. And I think it's just a really pricey ask for in terms of like what they're going to have to invest in this to kind of because they have to create new anchor, bring on new anchors, they have to create new programming to fill it because they're not taking all the programming. And I just don't necessarily think the demand is there. And I also think what they need to be focused on is how they can use news like CNN on Max to potentially engage with the customers who are not on Max and would be engaging with news. And they're getting their news via push notifications. They're getting it via a TikTok, which is terrifying, right? They're, they were to an extent getting it from Twitter. We'll see how long that continues. They're not going to get it from Threads because the CEO of Instagram, Adam Masseri, made it very clear Threads is not for uh, news. And so you're kind of saying there is this opportunity to actually latch on to this, this audience that is interested in news. But the minute that you're saying, hey, there's still a paywall, right? $15 is much cheaper than having to get cable, but there's still a paywall for you accessing CNN. I think we're going to have to see some really strong experimentation with how they allow people to access news with the idea of then upselling those customers into news. I don't think you can like push out a notification, say Russia has invaded Ukraine, come watch an HBO Max or now Max, and then say, oh, sorry, you have to pay $15 to get access to that news feed because people will just go on Twitter. But if you say, hey, we're going to give you an hour's worth of coverage for free, you come in, we realize it's a global news event. We are supporters of news. You'll hear every executive say this. We're supporters of news. We don't want to, we don't want to take news away from people. If you give them an hour's worth of it and the coverage is as good as CNN is, you might be able to convert a level of those incoming customers at a, at a, a high, high news point to then subscribe to Max and then maybe turn them into CNN viewers. But I think 
the way that we consume news and the value that we place on news, unfortunately, at our lives in 2023 is so vastly different from 1990, from 2000, from 2010, that it's a really risky bet even now, which is why I think they haven't announced anything with additional pricing around it. They're experimenting with it too. But Jason, I want to know your thoughts. Yeah, I think um, fundamentally there's two different kinds of material here that they can Mm -hmm. use. And one of them, and if you look at their competitors, Fox Nation um, plays their opinion um, shows the next day. Obviously, this is about the cable contract. And MSNBC does likewise. They do, you know, the next day all of their opinion shows are on. So you can watch them reheated the next day. But if you want them live, you've got to pay into the cable bundle. But still... If you think about David Zaslav and his background um, coming from Discovery, there is a I, – I know it doesn't seem like this given how expensive news gathering organizations are, but if you've already got a news gathering organization spun up, you can make some really cheap content that is nonfiction, right? It's it's yeah. Whether it's opinion-based – or whether it is journalistic, but with a little bit more of a shelf life, there are shows you can create. So like Christian Amanpour doing an interview or going somewhere and reporting and doing that once a week or or every two weeks or whatever, like there is a nonfiction show to be done there that is not going to be as time intensive uh, as a Discovery Channel show, but it's going to be way more timely. Great. I think that's a good use of resources like CNN to create that. I actually mm-hmm. think that's right in, in David Zaslav's wheel house here it's like what if discovery but more timely and and uh, you've already got an organization ready to to bring that out like great okay and the other thing is um and there's there's opinion stuff but again cnn brand is actually not that good for that um Mm -hmm. they could do some of that they can recycle some of that i'm not sure that's the future but uh, it's something they could do but the, the real other content is what you said which is it's breaking news it's when there's some big story and that's what i've always said on this podcast is that's when i tune in to cable news the only time i tune into cable news essentially is when something huge happens because if something is happening in the moment um you know i i read a lot but uh the 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 written word is not frequently the best source in that moment i applaud all the newspapers and news services that do their live blogs and all of that like I, i i get it but there is something really visceral about like this is happening right now and there's pictures of this hurricane or this uh you know this diplomatic incident or whatever it is this election you name it um so the idea that you could do a push notification that you presumably could turn off but the idea that you could be watching max or um or even be watching something else depending on what platform you're on if it supports a notification system right it could be on apple tv could can the max app send a this is breaking now uh notification to you and then you flip over and watch and they have some ability to do breaking news coverage the brilliant thing about that is the problem with cable news is that news is only breaking for about uh 30 hours a year (laughs) and the rest of the time they just got to fill it so that's the most valuable is those 30 hours so you need to have an organization spun up which they do it's cnn to to be there when the big thing breaks putting that on streaming I think, I mean, it's a great idea that that is a, another way mm-hmm. that you you win and it burnishes your brand and it makes Max more valuable. If you know that when that moment comes, you are going to get a, uh, you know, a red alert from Max that lets you watch live as they report about, you know, whatever it is. I think there's something there. So I think, you know, I think the question is just, you know, what do they spend for all of this? What's the long term strategy here? But the what we think of as a TV network today, other than the laundry folding 
example that you and I always give, which is just give me something to watch. Mm -hmm. Like that can be, that's linear now. Maybe in the long run, that will be something that's in a service, but is essentially linear. It's essentially just you tune it in and there are people and there are ads and then there are more people and that's just how they make it work. But in terms of like the modern era, I, I think those are the two things you look for if you're Zaslav is can you give me some content for Max that's relatively cheap that you can just spin out of CNN? And can you give me breaking? And yeah. then it's compelling, I think, at some level, I, obviously not knowing the budgets of CNN and all that and and leaving aside the, the linear future, which is obviously going down. Um, but I like the idea of can we can we find a breaking component of this? Because that's the in my mind, that is the A1 gold star value of the entire thing. You keep it spun up 365 Agreed. days a year for those, you know, handful of days when something huge happens. I, I, I definitely agree. And I think you touched on something very important, which is, of course, the advertising component. And the nice aspect of this is that the cannibalization effect is probably not going to be very large. The audience that pay that watches CNN and therefore pays uh, for, for pay TV is unlikely to move over to Max as long as they still have access to CNN and as long as nothing from CNN is being taken away, sure. right? And so that's that's what we should really reiterate. It's not like Anderson Cooper 360 is moving to streaming. It is like it'll be on both, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah. But it also means that although the reach of Max is nowhere close to pay TV, so when you see CNN put out these statements that are like CNN is in 80 million homes, or I think it's now in about 70 million homes in the United States, that's not going to be true for Max. Um, and, and even if if it if it is like the viewership aspect is not there in the way that it is with pay TV. So the reach, which is really important to advertisers, the impact of what they're of what where they put their ads and, and who will see it, very important to the advertising business, is not necessarily as large as the pay TV system. However, it does represent on Max a new audience demographic. If you've watched CNN um, in the last decade. The advertisements on it are basically for blood pressure medication and like yeah. plot burials. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very much yeah. like you are watching about death and also your death is imminent. Don't forget like it's, reverse it's, mortgages and uh, yeah, reverse, all, all those it, things. It's like, are you 65, 70, 85? Yeah, like, that's the demo. You're, you're, you're our demo. And if you look at Max, the demo is going to be much younger. And so the bet that they're making is that young people still want news, and they do. We, we Every piece of data, every survey we have suggests that young people still want news. What they're betting, to what Jason was saying, is that young people are going to want a combination of news via streaming service they already pay for or willing to pay for on top of this kind of unscripted, almost I would put good money, similar to kind of court TV, HLN, investigation, discovery style, unscripted content that is, you know, this serial killer of the week type situation as alongside the like, you, well, you can never do Anthony Bourdain again, but you know, like the Stanley Tucci in Italy right. documentary series, like these big personalities that want to be on CNN. And so they, so, and they do the fun shows that also to Jason's point don't cost much and that that will be enough to bring in new subscribers and also create a higher CPM for the advertisers, a new level of advertiser that they're bringing into CNN, that it will create a level of profit margin that is not going to be anywhere close to CNN today, but will effectively pay for the additional expenses that you need to run that unit and will ideally migrate a new consumer, a new young news consumer base to Max as they then grow into an older consumer base that wants to watch news, that they're just more interested in news as they get older. They start to worry about mortgages. They start to think about 
schools for their kids, right? Like you just naturally become more inclined when you're older to pay attention to the news. So their bet is if we get them in now by approaching them where they are in their technology, we may see some cannibalization, but not really. And we're going to ride out pay TV as much as we can. And we're going to do this right now without increasing the cost because we want people to be able to access it at no further paywall than the one we already have to see if this experiment can work. What I think will be really interesting is to see how the adoption of CNN on Max, if it happens, and I'm still not sure that it will happen at the level they might need it to happen at as frequently right. as they need it to happen at, but what the adoption of, C- of CNN and then further sports integration from TNT into Max will do for that overall price and what it will do for the overall churn. Because if we expect that simply switching the distribution model will have a similar effect as the current pay TV system, which I don't think is true, but I digress. If you, if you, if that's the, the theory that they're going with, then you'll actually see low churn because although the pricing is higher, if you want the majority of your entertainment that you want it on, it's on this platform and so you'll pay for it. I think the difference, and I'm really happy you brought up Fox. I think the difference is if I'm a young Republican, right? I think Fox is a great example. If I'm a young Republican and I can't, I don't really want to pay for pay TV. I'm not really interested in Fox anymore since Tucker's gone, right? Or, or whatever it is. I have how many other news sources? I have Newsmax, which I can get from streaming. I have YouTubers that I can listen to. I have podcasters who I can listen to. It's not like the scarcity of that product is right. still as it was 10, 15 years ago. Now the scarcity is completely removed and everything is infinite for whatever interest you want at a lower price point. And I think that's going to be the question that comes up with CNN on Max. I think to your point exactly, Jason, the breaking news is it. It is like if I'm I want to see if Russia's invading Ukraine, I want to see it. Like I want to see the the cameras. I want to see what's happening. How often do we get this? This is why for people who are not big media nerds, the why during the Jeff Zucker era, they spent like seven months on a missing plane. Like it was like yeah. people were super interested and they could sell ads on it. And they were like, great, like this is this is what we're going to do. And in the new CNN era, they kind of moved away from that. They're trying to be, you know, less sensationalistic. But that means you're relying on breaking news quite often because they don't have the opinions, uh, 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 opinion style commentary to, J- to Jason's point that Fox does. Um, and they're also, again, they're not local. And I don't know if the CNN brand as a news outside of breaking really matters to younger consumers. And I think that's the question they're going to have to wrestle with. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, there's uh, there's some interesting models to try out here. And I, I like that they're trying some, right? They need to try yes. some. All right, um, let us move on. I have something that I'm calling a strategy check that I want to get your opinion on. And just because this was an interesting little streaming story this week where the trailer for Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon was released. Now, okay, Zack Snyder, film director, did a bunch of DC stuff, did Watchmen, did 300, uh, Sucker Punch. He's done a bunch of stuff. He, his latest is a deal with Netflix to make a movie that is, I would say, Star Wars-esque, but it's not actually a movie. It's two movies, or it's a what they call a two-part movie event. And, you know, I'm not Zack Snyder's biggest fan. I'm just going to say that. But I will say, while while I watched that trailer, or teaser trailer, for Rebel Moon, I had a, a couple of thoughts. One is... I saw a lot of people saying, is this a TV show or a movie? And the answer is, mm, 
it's a two-part movie event so it's basically a, t- a very high budget two episode you know tv series or is it two movies released a couple months apart you be the judge it is a it is a little bit uh terminology breaking in that way and then it looks very expensive and um and the other thought i had was about you julia because one of the things we've talked about here is netflix not owning franchise ip mm. they got stranger mm-hmm. things sure but like it's been they they netflix is doing great but the one thing that they don't have is some sort of jewel in the crown where you're like oh boy and they own x they don't have that and i looked at this and i thought um and i saw you were saying this on twitter too it's like if you're netflix why do you spend this much money on this and i think like okay it's a it's a tentpole um it is going to maybe make people pay attention to Netflix who might have been wavering on it. I think that's all interesting. But what stu- stood out to me watching it was it's also they're taking a shot. I think they're taking a shot at a franchise. Like, I, I, I don't I'm not saying this thing is going to become the next Star Wars. It's probably not right. The odds are against it. But in watching that teaser trailer, I was like, you know. Could it be the next Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Star Trek or something like that where they could make, you know, mm-hmm. eight, eight TV shows and, and nine other movies or whatever else in this universe if this hits? Like, maybe they could. And and on, on that level alone, I actually kind of like the idea of like, yeah, Netflix, give it a shot. Maybe you can't win if you don't play. What do you think about the Rebel Moon uh, strategy here? This is strategy check. A new a new segment I just made up. <laughs> I was just going to make the same strategy check down as I do a sports corner, but that feels like it's degrading a sports corner. Strategy check. (laughs) There it is. Oh, God, I love it. Um, Well, first of all, I have a very important question for you. Yeah. Did you think it looked good? I mean, knowing that it's Zack Snyder, honestly, prejudices me against it a little bit. But it looked expensive and it looked like a I mean, what I know a little bit about it. It is it is a bunch of themes that seem very familiar, especially in terms of Star Wars. But it's seen through the lens of Zack Snyder. And I thought, you know what? The fact is, Star Wars feeling a little old. Star Trek is is old. It's 60 years old. Like. I don't like like I said, I think the chances of this becoming the next one are low because you can't it's hard to make a franchise. But when I look at this, I thought this is an interesting idea to take a lot of the tropes that people like from Star Wars or Lord of the Rings and remix it and put it out there again as something new. And you never know. You might strike gold, even though I was I, I mean, it didn't look I, I didn't shake my head while I was watching the trailer. I was like, wow, they spent a lot of money on this. This is interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't, watched that's the, about it. <laughs> no, I watched the trailer. I'm like you. So I'm typically not a Snyder fan. I am the only person I know of who actually genuinely likes Batman v Superman because I think it's border camp. It borderlines camp. And I'm like, this is great. Uh, like you guys were hate, hate each other. Now you're best friends because you have your moms have the same name. Like, that's perfect. <laughs> yep. Like, great. Um, so, but I, I'm also not a big Snyder fan. Watched the trailer, was into it. I was like, okay, like, this is cool. The, they've, you've got cooler lightsaber tricks in this than I've seen in Star Wars in the last five years. Like, like I'm, I'm into kind of what you're trying to do. Two things struck out to, or three things stuck out to me when I was kind of looking at it. One, I thought it was interesting that this debuted at Gamescom, right? So the crowd is very, very Snyder friendly. Mm-hmm. It's also the crowd that is going to look at that film and think this is a cool world 
I would play something in this world. And is interesting when you think about what Netflix wants to do. And I think there is already a Rebel Moon like game that they're kind of looking to develop. They're basically thinking about how they can develop different types of games with their IP. Rebel Moon kind of fits the bill. And so what you were saying, Jason, I think is really important, which is Netflix views this as a franchise already. Like it's not just like we're going to experiment with this and see how this goes. It is like we're going to develop cross medium support for this. Um, because we think it's going to be really big for us. So that was the one thought I had. The second thought I had is something that I've said on the show before. Um, I know Jason's heard me say it, is that there's this tendency over the last decade for a lot of these companies, especially within streaming, to say, I'm going to make this thing because it looks like another thing that you like. And so therefore, you might like this thing. And it's this like Jupiter's Legacy is probably the best example also from Netflix where it was like, it's a superhero show. Therefore, you should like it. It's a superhero show. Um, and it kind of looks like all these other shows that you do like. And then it really spectacularly failed. I'm not going to say that's going to happen to Rebel Moon. I think Rebel Moon looks actually pretty decent. But I think it has so many of the qualities of when you're watching it, you can go like, yep, that's Star Wars or like. I'm seeing a lot of like Blade Runner type stuff. Like there's so much in here that if I'm a fan of this, I will therefore probably be a fan of this, that you feel a little bit better taking that bet because it feels so familiar. I mean, part of the reason many people argued when the first season of Stranger Things did as well as it did is because it felt so familiar in its nostalgia, right? It was like, so like if you, yeah. if you were the person who grew up in the eighties, you loved it. And if you're a person who grew up in the early 2000s, you came into a moment where your parents were in the 80s, so they were watching it. Or now you're obsessed with the 80s, which a lot of young teenagers and, and 20-somethings are, and I love it for them. So I was kind of like, all right, there's a nostalgia familiarity play that might work for it. It looks expensive. It, it feels like it's got the right cast, the right director for it, like maybe. And then the third thought I had, and I think this is the most important part is this movie Zack Snyder brought to Warner Brothers for years, right? Like, he was like, I want to make my... And by the way, the Star Wars thing is not just us saying it. Like, he calls it his Star Wars. Yeah. He's like, like I like I want to make my Star Wars. Here it is. I think it's going to be great. Need the budget for it. And Warner Brothers repeatedly, reportedly had turned this down repeatedly, right? And I'm not saying that a, a studio saying no to a movie is a sign that it's a bad movie. This, is hap this happens quite often. But I think if you're Warner Brothers, the reason I thought it was interesting is that you don't need a Star Wars necessarily. You wouldn't say no to it. But at this point in time, you've got Harry Potter, you got DC. So you're building things out already. And you've kind of got this mixed match situation with Zack Snyder, where like Sucker Punch did pretty well, and 300 did amazing, and Man of Steel did pretty well. But Batman v Superman didn't, Justice League did. And then you got this whole situation with, with Zack Snyder in the studio. And so there's this kind of like, they don't really need it, and this director might not be the director for them. If you're Netflix, and this goes back to what Jason was saying, if you're Netflix and you're kind of starting to sound like the dude who sits at your local bar in your local hometown who's like, I remember when I was quarterback, 1977, <laughs> like, like, and Stranger Things is that for you? And they're like, ah, we did Stranger Things. And you're like, yeah, but cool, man. But like, what happened after? What's next? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's great. It, if you're Netflix, this is a huge opportunity because for Netflix, it is the right director, right? Army of, uh, I was going to say Army of Darkness. So that's that's a different movie. Um, his his zombie movie did pretty well for them. I'm not really sure how the, the prequel did. I don't think it did spectacularly, but it did well enough that they continue kind of working with him. Yeah, Army I think of the Rebel, Dead, by the way, is the name of that. Army of the Dead, thank you. The other one is a Bruce Campbell movie that is phenomenal. Yes. But, if, uh, it, but if you're Netflix... There is this, especially Netflix film, 
there is this little bit of like, we really need something big. We need something mm-hmm. that can also probably translate well to games. We need something that we can maybe do interactive experiences with, maybe a podcast, maybe a comic, whatever it is, merch. This kind of fits that bucket. What I will say, last thing on this, is that trying to force a franchise out of the gate and trying to do it with a movie that looks like it cost $150, 170000000 million a piece at minimum and only bringing it to a streaming platform where those audiences are already there. You're not going to bring in new fans. Like, like those audiences are on that platform. They'll watch what he puts out. I think is going to burn a hole in Netflix's pocket no matter what. I assume Netflix yeah. will operate at a loss on these films. Yep. But the goal is that they will then turn that into the black down the line through kind of repeated views, through the ability to make a TV show, through the ability to sell additional merchandise and whatever it might be. And that's a huge, huge bet that you're putting on a movie that kind of sort of looks like it should work because it kind of sort of looks like another movie that did work. Now, let me throw this at you because I think this is an interesting twist, which is Netflix famously doesn't want to put movies in movie theaters. They want to put them on Netflix. I look at something like this and I think, should it be in a movie theater? Only because the movie theater, like a lot of these sensations that come out of nowhere, like Star Wars, it's because people found it in the movie theater and they loved it. And then they followed Mm -hmm. it there. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you're Netflix, I know why you have this strategy, but are you closing off one potential path? Are you reducing the chances that this thing is going to become your mega hit by not letting it play in theaters? Right. And it's like, what's more important to them? And their, their dogma about like not putting things in theaters is so strong that I think that they're potentially shooting Mm -hmm. themselves in the foot, not putting these things in theaters. Absolutely. I totally agree. Even if you remove the revenues. So so the theatrical question is really fun, right? I've been having this with a client who will remain um, unnamed. And the reason that theatrical is such an interesting conversation is because you have to feel pretty good, not only about the chance that it will break even in theater. So you remember you're paying to rent out space from the exhibitor as you negotiate with the exhibitor. The exhibitor is not going to give Netflix a great deal by any means because of the ongoing battles between them. And so you're, you're saying, okay, well, we want to be in 4,000 on 4,000 screens, right? That's about like a Marvel movie, a Star Wars movie, 3,700 to 4,000 screens. Um, And we're hoping to kind of break even on this. We have to spend another 150 in marketing, uh, to get the movie out there. We then have to look at the windows. We have to see like, who are we going up against? Do they have a built-in fan base? Are they going to potentially be bigger than us? Are they going to dwarf us? You know, are they go- what is this going to do for us in international markets? And so if- all of those, by the way, f- f- like very reasonable questions for Netflix to ask, especially when the bottom line of a theatrical, when you think about a waterfall of how revenue kind of works for a lot of these studios is like you go from the theatrical which again you hope maybe build a make a profit but you sometimes you might break even sometimes you don't and then you make a ton of money sometimes in the uh uh the dvd blu-ray section in the uh digital rental section licensing it to streaming licensing it to like an hbo that's where you kind of make you your movie goes from being in the red to in the black if you're Netflix and you don't have that waterfall effect because you're going straight from the movie theater to Netflix because that's where your consumers are, then there are reasonable questions to ask about the decision not to go to theaters. But what Jason is saying, and I'm so glad you brought up Star Wars and, and the way you phrased it, is you're losing out on the 
marketing that a theatrical movie does for you. Yeah. It, it More people will watch something. We have data that shows this. We'll watch a movie on streaming if it's in theaters first for a little bit because it comes with like, oh, well, there's – because you're naturally marketing it. And so you're marketing it to be in theaters. That picks up. Then people are going to see it. That picks up. And then once it lands on streaming, they're like, oh, I saw this movie or my friend saw this movie and said it was great. I should watch it. If you're already going to operate at a loss, and I have a theory on this, I've not run the numbers, but my theory is that you, most movies that take more than $50 million to make on Netflix are operating at a loss on average. I say on average because there's always outliers. Um, but I think most, I think the, 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 the prime real estate for a Netflix film is between 20 and 35 million or lower. Um, but if you are putting a $170 million film on Netflix, without theaters you're bypassing theaters i assume you're already operating at a loss you already kind of know that going in you're like we're going to try to build this out we're going to hope that this has a long tail we really want the director we want to be known for the sci-fi like we're going to do it why not just put it in theaters for a couple of weeks like it, it to me it makes no sense especially when they've experimented in the past with Zack snyder movies it's like a weird thing for me i can't wrap my head around it but at the end of that teaser trailer, which, by the way, for a teaser trailer, three minutes, 30 seconds, that's yeah, not a teaser not trailer, that's a, a trailer. But uh, at the end of that trailer, it literally was like only on Netflix. And I I, I genuinely slammed my desk and was like, come <laughs> on. Yeah. Well, we'll watch it. We'll we'll, we'll keep yeah. an eye on that. Yeah. So that, was, that is strategy check right there. Look, we did it. Uh, this episode of Downstream is brought to you by Factor. With the busy fall season just around the corner, you should be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You will save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. I have tried Factor, and let me tell you, my favorite thing about it is the quality of the ingredients. I have gotten some sketchy food in a box at my front door <laughs> over the years, and I was like, I don't know, these are these are individual meals. I can cook it in two minutes and then eat it. But yeah, is it going to be any good? And it was really good. I keep raving about the chicken, but like chicken breast, I, I have had some sketchy chicken in meal, in box meals. It was beautiful, immaculate every time. All of the different chicken meals that I had with Factor were great. And the veggies are great too. Very high quality. Skip that extra trip to the grocery store. They're fresh, never frozen meals already in two minutes. You have more than 34 flavor packed options to choose from every week. And there's more. They have gourmet plus options that'll help you level up even more upscale meals with premium ingredients, broccolini, leeks, truffle butter, asparagus, you name it. They've got some lunch to go options, including grain bowls and salad toppers, no microwave required. And there are other add-ons too, including breakfast items. So wherever you are feeling it, you know, you're like, I need a bacon and cheddar egg bite my life because my breakfast is just not doing it for me or maybe it's lunch or maybe it's dinner you can put it all together with factor and rest assured you're making a sustainable choice factor offsets 100 of their delivery emissions to your door along with sourcing renewable electricity and featuring sustainably sourced seafood head to factormeals.com downstream 50 and use code downstream 50 to get 50 percent. that's what the 50 means off your first box that's code downstream 50 downstream 50 at factormeals.com slash downstream 50 to get 50% off your first box. Thank you to Factor for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Okay, sports corner time. Sports corner. Woo! Julia, Great you wrote jungle. something about on Puck that it fits into Sports Corner. Thank you. It is a very cleverly headlined Apple's messy complex. Uh, so the, the big question here is, where should a streamer spend its money? 
And, you know, it's not an either or, but let's just put it out there. What's the better return on the investment in the long term? Is it live sports rights, which are extremely expensive, or creating new TV series and films, which are extremely expensive? <laughs> and this is always the question, like, do you want reach? Do you want revenue? Uh, Apple has experimented with um, MLS and Major League Baseball. Um, there is, you know, th there are, are interesting things going on here. Um, ESPN, obviously Bob Iger saying, looking for a strategic partner. Is that Apple? Is it a league? What's going on there? But I thought it was worth uh, touching base since you wrote the column about, I think this really interesting conundrum, which is how do you, I mean, and it, it can be both or at least a little bit of both, but like live sports rights and a lot of original content, both very expensive. Um, what is, is there a right answer here or do we just not know which one is a better return? If there was a, a right answer, I would say that I uh, would be tens of millions of dollars richer uh, <laughs> and and in close contact with uh, Bobby Iger. But I there I don't know. And anyone who says I do know is lying. What, what I will say is that it's so dependent on not just the platform, but the conglomerate like. Here's kind of how I approach this question. Sports represents something that has been untouched during a, a period of insane disruption. If we look at kind of the last 15 years, the disruption has come in twofold, both in the distribution side, and that has been the change of the pay TV bundle to streaming, but also on the content side, right? If you think about what's pretty become re uh, uh, rep pretty easy to replicate. And by easy, I don't mean in terms of quality, but I mean in terms of actual ability to do so. You can think about how original content started getting uploaded to YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and how original series kind of took form there. So if you didn't want to watch something on pay TV because you didn't want to pay for it and you weren't really interested in paying for another streaming service, you could actually get a pretty strong level of entertainment for free via these different video streaming platforms, right? So that was a kind of this creator revolution moment that happened. And you've got creators like Issa Rae, right, who um, did Insecure for HBO, um, also did a show called Rap Shit for HBO, uh, who came out of, of YouTube. You've got people like the creator of Girls, also on HBO. Maybe this is just an HBO thing, but uh, who who had a lot of uh, success on YouTube. And um, now you've got the this new movie from A24 from two brothers known as the Rocka Rocka kind of brothers who came out of YouTube as well. And so there was this idea that you could actually go get quality entertainment from a lot of these early up and coming creators from from uh, free opportunity from free platforms. Now, what did that do? It essentially set took the idea of scarcity and said this no longer exists. Scarcity is gone in terms of entertainment content. You can go get it from anywhere else in the world for free on a platform. You can divide your attention however you want with that. Add in gaming, add in podcasts, add in whatever it is. And all of these free to play, free to watch, free to listen to options started coming about. And so that was a really big concern for entertainment content. Sports remains the last vestige of like you can't really change it on the cre on the content creation side like, it's really difficult to say we're going to start up a new league right because you need the players it's a lot of money and so what remains effectively unchanged both on the distribution and on the content supply side has been sports and what that means is from an advertising potential 
the ability to command and commodify a level of attention share that no longer exists almost anywhere on this planet is only happening with certain sports leagues. And so therefore, you would think the easy answer to that is like, well, of course they should all be in sports. Like that makes a ton of sense. Except that the average cost of a show, even an expensive show, right? The average cost of a show is maybe... 10 million, $20 million. And that's, that's still pretty high, but within streaming, it's about average. You get to some shows that are 100, 120 million. That's, that's expensive, right? For a year, you're doing that. The MLS deal, which again, the MLS for Apple is not the NBA. It's not the NBA. It's not the NFL, right? It's not even the MLB. It's not even the NHL. The MLS deal for Apple was $250 million a season for this kind of 10 billion, uh, uh, 10, was it 10 billion, $250 million a season over the course of these 10 years. Uh, 10 years. Thank you. 10 years. Um, in order to kind of give Apple the ability to own effectively all of these different games and be the sole proprietor of it. That is a deal that made sense for Apple, who's trying to showcase that it can be an advertising hub within Apple TV Plus, within live sports. It also makes sense for Apple, who's a company obsessed with brand prestige. And sports is the most brand safe, prestigious thing you could have, especially soccer where it's global and Apple's a global business, even if it is, you know, MLS focused. Um, It's also an opportunity for Apple to test its ability to actually broadcast a game, to create these kind of decadent game experiences that we're used to on broadcast where the money has been sunken before. So if you're Apple, if you're a company that was valued at like, what, $3 trillion a couple of weeks ago, if you are that company, you've got money to spend and you want to be in that world. It makes sense to do it. Now, the reason I said it is because of the conglomerates. If you are an uh, an ABC, a CBS, uh, an NBC, now you belong to this kind of bigger company. You belong to a Disney. You belong to a Comcast. You belong to a uh, Paramount. Sports is a huge portion of your revenue. It's also important and very important that you maintain the pay TV and broadcast situation that you're within, if you're ESPN, right? Whatever you might be. And so if what you're going to do is say, we are going to continue bidding on sports, but we're going to kind of fragment this slightly. We're going to try and not own everything. We want certain packages within the broadcast rights, within the pay TV rights, and within our OTT rights, because we want to be able to tap into different audiences and maintain those audiences in high revenue buckets like pay TV. And so they're kind of doing it a different way where they're saying, we don't want to own the whole thing. We don't want to be the sole proprietor, especially for $75 billion. That's what the NBA was rumored to, to be kind of talking to w, uh, WBD about. We don't want to pay all that money. We don't have that type of money. We're also trying to pay for content, which we know we need. And we're trying to recreate a pay TV bundle with sports and entertainment. And so we kind of need to figure out a way to do this without really throwing ourselves further into the red than we already are. And if you're a Netflix you don't have the live technology capabilities to even be interesting to elite. And even though you have the highest amount of subscribers in the U.S., at 70, what were that now, but 78 million subscribers, how many of those are interested in sports? How many new customers are you going to bring in versus what can you do as a pure entertainment play and looking at potential docuseries, looking at other potential smaller leagues to, to buy into? That's a question where you might say, you know, for us, it makes more sense to kind of continue investing in a, in a movie franchise. We have to figure that out before we can even figure out sports. So it really is so hit or miss. And, and, and the, 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 the big conversation, we'll get into this when we eventually do our Sports Corner episode, um, will be about the RSNs and how you figure out local sports within this new kind of transient media world. Um, but yeah, so I, I think there's there's no right answer, but it is an advertising question on more than anything else for a lot of these companies. And it is the ability to say that we can no longer 
command the attention share we used to be able to command and therefore we can no longer commodify that and so we need to find these last vestiges that are able to do that for us but we also need to do it carefully and that makes it a really difficult uh, uh wire to, to to it makes it a really diff- difficult rope to walk or whatever the expression is mm-hmm. and it, i think it's scary if you're the media networks who need a lot of revenue and i think it's scary if you're the leagues who want the revenue as well but also really need that reach um, to continue that the fandom for younger fans, and that's why you have this cloud of anxiety. Especially, it's it's hanging over the the sports uh, co- industry complex right now. It's just there is no right answer, unfortunately. Yeah, and the rights. What the sports leagues don't want to hear is that the rights have been artificially inflated, and they benefited from this. Yes, where they've had a lot of people paying for sports rights, who are playing a bigger game. And and we talk about that now on this show about like Apple and Amazon and even Google playing a, a bigger game than the than the streamers themselves because they've got this whole giant tech infrastructure around. But the fact is, TV networks overpay for sports rights because they want to be able to sell ads on it, but also market the rest of their content and their ancillary benefits. So it's like, well, we'll break even or just make a little bit or even lose money on the sports rights, but it has ancillary benefits for the rest of our network. That was always an argument or it was the uh, direct TV deal for Sunday ticket. And that was uh, DirecTV overpaying for it because they were going to lose money on that, but they were going to get people to sign up for DirecTV and put a dish on their house. And then they were going to cut the cord from cable and become satellite subscribers. And so they did it. And now we're entering an era. uh, And then, you know, you can you can go down the line. um, Who are the next whales for these overpriced rights? RSNs were the last one, I would say, basically, because the RSNs overpaid for them because they were trying the cable companies overpaid for the RSNs because they were trying to keep people from canceling cable didn't work but that was what they were trying to do well the tech companies are sort of what remains and so i think that they are going to naturally gravitate there because the tech companies are the ones who've got lots of money and are thinking bigger picture and are willing to overpay for sports rights potentially uh, maybe not as much but overpay for them because they're trying to um, build something new and the the leagues love that right they love who's Mm -hmm. gonna whoever is gonna overpay that's who they want because that's how you make the most money um Apple uh, is definitely interested, as we said um, last time about the the Pac-12 negotiations. Apple definitely seems to have its limits, where it's sort of like wants partnerships and it's not willing to to break the bank on a particular deal. It wants to uh, to create those partnerships, and the MLS deal is big, but it's not huge, and it's also a a lower tier league in America, and so they, there's a little less risk there. Um, but you're right. I, I think the other thing that's interesting here is so much of the biggest stuff is still on a linear platform. And yes. so the other thing to watch is like y- you put a lot of it on streaming, especially the long tail stuff that's for the super fans. But you probably want a linear partner just as yeah. Apple has for MLS. They have a linear partner who is showing MLS matches because they, you want visibility outside of your your streaming silo as well. So that's part of the the question there is whether you buy a portion, you buy the streaming service part of the rights, or if you do what Apple did with MLS, which is you buy all the rights. 
and then you sub-license essentially to a linear partner um, because if you're Apple, you don't have a broadcast network. If you're Disney, if you're ESPN, you can put on ABC. Exactly. And you, and you can put on cable and you can put it on ABC and then you can put it on streaming. If you're Paramount, you can put it on CBS and also on Paramount Plus and obviously Peacock and NBC and, and USA Network, the same and thing. Pluto, and Pluto TV, yeah. right? Like the right. fast networks are exactly. huge for this. Right, because what what is it? It's perfect. It's it's the, what could be more linear than a fast network, right? It's and so it's, 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 it's basically over the air. It's free. And I, and I think the other part of this conversation that's really important is if you're talking about Disney and Paramount and NBC Universal, if you have already seen the damage that has come with cutting off your limbs in order to chase streaming and it hasn't really done as well as it needed to do. And now you're basically saying, do we do the same thing with sports? Like, like this is the like this is yeah. it for us. Like, this is what we're holding on to. And now, do we just say we're going to move everything over and hope that that fixes everything? Mm-hmm. That's the band aid we needed. Or are you going to say, actually, we just not only cut off all our limbs, we've now decapitated ourselves. <laughs> we have absolutely gotten rid of every form of revenue that we can think of. And if you're the leagues, you're like. We want to still figure out how to make money because we don't want to impose harsher salary caps on our players uh, who will then be very upset and on the teams who will then have the unions will start. It's, it's, it's a whole situation. And so it's probably the most important story, not Apple and the MLS, but, but the idea of like what's happening within sports, probably the right. most important media story because it will affect every other part of these companies down to not just TV, down to their theatrical businesses, down to wherever they're collecting their revenue and how yeah. they how they disperse it. It's going to be really complicated. Yeah, because yeah, the value here is that it's it's um, people watch it live, and which means they're going to be receptive for commercials, and that's incredibly powerful. And we live in a very, very, very fractured media world. We were talking about news earlier. Like breaking news is uh, is a time when a lot of people will stop and watch whatever the breaking news is of the disaster or big story or whatever. Sports is the other one, and it is even though all the business models are changing, the fundamental of the World Cup final is on, and I want to watch it is not going to go away and there's huge power there but the question is what's the business model that forms around it and apple's experiments here we talked a lot about apple but like what's interesting is that apple is is trying to probe the sports rights business to figure out the future and that's instructive in a lot of ways even if they're not going to get all the rights they were bidding for the first division rights for uh, the dutch league um, Dutch first division. And um, the last story I saw said that they hadn't made any decisions there, but that it was ESPN and a consortium of telecom companies in Europe that were the final bidders and not Apple, even though Apple had been rumored there. So again, too rich for their blood, perhaps, but uh, they're interesting to watch uh, because I don't know, they're, they're trying some they're tinkering in a way that like ESPN kind of can't do. They just have to spend huge amounts of money, but Apple can tinker a little bit and that's what they're doing. Exactly. Um, we are going to do another Sports Corner episode uh, in two or four weeks. We haven't decided yet, but like sometime next month. So if you have questions for the Sports Corner only episode of Downstream, please send it, send them, send whatever to downstreamfeedback.com. We really appreciate it. This episode of Downstream is brought to you by CallSheet, the new iOS app that answers your questions about TV shows, movies, cast, or crew in a clean interface without spoilers and other stuff you don't want to see. If you've ever been watching a show or a movie and said, hey, who's that guy? Uh, Have you ever looked up the cast of a show on an app only to get spoiled on their secret identity? Oh, this person is actually this other person? CallSheet handles all of this. It's a great iOS app to solve these problems. You can set it to not spoil you on things like how many episodes are they on or what are their character names? 
and that all works. It's got a button to go to just watch to find out like, oh, they're in this movie. I wonder if where that movie is streaming right now. Oh, it's on Max. I'll go watch it next or something like that. Uh, I've definitely done this thing where it's like, oh, there's this guy on Only Murders in the Building. Where do I know him from? And you go through and it's like, oh, it's some British thing that I watched a million years ago. But that's who that guy is. Um, Happens all the time. Problem is a lot of the apps and websites that are out there kind of junky. They don't have things like great just watch integration and spoiler protection. And also they have ads and their interfaces are bad and you keep tapping, trying to make the things go away and they don't go away. They just don't go away. Uh, and, uh, you know what, uh, call sheet I've been using it the last few weeks. It doesn't do any of those things. It's really nice. Um, it's fast. It's ad free. It respects its users. It was written by one guy, my pal Casey. He's also a podcaster. He couldn't find the right app to do this. So he built it himself. Uh, it will, it is just, it's a very good app. What can I say? I think you should try it out. And the beauty of it is call sheet is not one of these apps that's going to make you log in or give it money up front. Uh, 20 searches you get for free. It's not going to bug you until you're getting toward the end. It's going to just let you use the app. And by the time you get to the end of the app, you'll know whether you want to pay for a subscription to call sheet. And then of course, even after you sign up for a subscription, you get the first week for free. So you've got lots of opportunity, but I think if you give it a try, you're going to love it. And you're going to say, this is totally worth it instead of those other websites and apps out there. So check it out now. I think you, dear listeners, spend time watching movies and TV shows. So check out CallSheet, callsheetapp.com slash downstream. That's callsheetapp.com slash downstream. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, CallSheet, for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Julia, it's letters time now before we go. Letters. Time See, for letters. all my jingles sound the same. The, yeah, yeah, right. Sports Corner letters. <laughs> Strategies check. Right, yeah, yeah, that's all right. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. Uh, this one's from John who says, uh, so I've been looking at what's been shot and what's been released. And it seems to me the studios will run out of content in the first quarter of 2024. What happens if the strike goes on that long? Any predictions? <laughs> Um, Netflix will be mostly fine. Uh, Disney and will start spacing things out for Hulu and Disney Plus if it gets that bad, but also their catalogs are okay. The biggest question is going to be on the uh, Paramount Plus Peacock side because they rely on next day programming. And so if the networks, like if CBS and NBC are not actually running new shows, what happens to how people may value the the um, streaming service they have my assumption and i want to say that um i hope that the writers and the studios are able to come to a uh solve for this fix uh, solve for the situation quickly mm-hmm. um i'm sh- it, i'm sure it's it's i can't even imagine how difficult it is for everyone involved in it um especially on the writer side of course and the actors um this is not th- th- the streamers are better prepared for it because of what happened in the in the 2007-2008 strike where it basically created the birth of unscripted content at the level scale that we see it at. Also, international content is really helping. So if you look at Netflix, and international content could also include things from like the UK. So it's not just foreign language. It's just things that are not filmed in, in domestically. Um, they're they're going to have more of that coming in. You're going to see a lot more deals with like Canadian companies production companies who are not involved in the strike and so they can create content pretty quickly and send it over and they'll still have next day programming that the other companies can then license out and so i think 
the streaming services will most likely be okay. Um, and with Netflix, because they are have a much stricter schedule on uh, in terms of like they're much tighter with how they film. And then when they go out, um, they'll be fine, you know, basically through the half of next year. But they all want this to be over. They would all like to get back to shooting. If this isn't over in the next month, month and a half, the whole rest of 2023 is shot because then you get into the seasons like the like Christmas and they basically don't start till next year. And that's months of of uh not being able to film so they'll be okay for a little bit but it's it's uh more so than q like they'll be okay past q1 but if this is still an issue by the end of this year you know q3 of next year is going to look really rough also they can stretch it out to a certain degree um and they will do that i'm sure they've got all their contingencies where they've stretched everything out just like movie releases have all been stretched out the other thing to watch and i remember this from past writer strikes is the strike will get settled and everybody like, oh, thank goodness. And what you'll find is that like eight months later, there's a black hole because yeah. there's the the stuff they've stretched out and then they've started production, but the yeah. stuff's not ready yet. And so you'll end up being like, yay, everything's working. And then you'll get to that like next summer or next fall and there won't be anything ready. And that'll be rough too. So the longer it goes, the thinner it's going to get on the ground. Um, and and if you're uh, uh, in the writers or actors guilds negotiating, you know that that clock is there. You know that that clock is ticking. And uh, that's an advantage for their side, right? That the producers mm-hmm. are aware that um, they're going to run out of content and that's going to be real bad. So uh, Matthias writes, I've just resubscribed, actually just got two free months on Apple TV Plus, and I got a pre-roll ad on Foundation for a Foundation podcast. Is this just because I have a two months free subscription or did Apple add ads there at well as well? Um, Matthias, I pay for Apple TV plus and I get the ad for, uh, for the podcast. I also get usually a pre-roll ad for another thing on Apple TV. And this is when we talk about ads here, I just want to make this clear because I, I get this a lot. I see this a lot. You don't have to like it, but the services don't consider promos for other things on their service an mm-hmm. ad. It's a promo. It's a pre-roll. It's a, hey, well, you, since we've got you here, watch this other show too. They don't view that as an ad. And it isn't, and it's not breaking up the content. It's at the beginning. It's a pre-roll. But they all basically do that at this point. I would say it's a good service if they let you skip it, Apple. It's a bad service if they don't let you skip it paramount plus (laughs) paramount plus puts their pre-rolls in their ad system so even if you pay to not see ads in paramount plus the pre-rolls are unskippable boo (laughs) but promos aren't ads and that's the difference so you're going to see promos promos you're going to see everywhere whether you're paying for ad free or not whether it's an ad free only service like apple tv plus is right now although as we've learned inevitable everybody's going to have an ad tier because there's too much money to be made in advertising for it not to be the case but even if you pay to not see the ads you will still see the promos that's just how it God, is i cannot it, wait for apple to get into true advertising because i think it's gonna happen well they well they are masters and masters of uh their own marketing like they're so good at their own commercials for their hardware especially and, and the privacy I got I'm the amount of ads you would need to really sustain a, an entertainment business means you're going to have some not great ads and yeah oh I cannot wait to see Apple navigate that it's going to be it's going to be interesting but when you look at the calculation I mean we talked about it here when you look at the calculation that Disney makes where it's like it's clear that they make more money 
on ad subs and Netflix makes more money on ad subs than they do. That's why they're raising all of their ad free versions is because they're literally making more money with the ad level. So Apple's going to do it. The question is, I wrote a whole column at Macworld about this, why it's inevitable, but, um, but yeah, what does it look like? And they have an ad business and they do search ads in app store and they do all sorts of things like that. But to create a business where brand ad, I, Actually, Apple being a place that brand advertisers are comfortable coming, I think that's going to be easy for them. But like, oh, because, yeah. because it's a good fit and Apple cares about the brand, you know, they'll have image. blue chip ads. Exactly. Yeah, it'll right. be it'll be strong ads. I think they'll be the out? last. Exactly. And I think they'll be the last to do it. Yeah, I think for because sure. they have the most money, they can also just be like, oh, they we're can, fine. We're bankrolling Eddie's experiment. But like yeah. and in sports, um, they do have ads. Yes. Yeah. So because sports are natural for that. Uh, Casey writes, I don't think this is the same Casey who wrote call sheet, but you never know. I'm currently watching the latest season of justified on YouTube TV and every commercial break contains the same ads. Mm. Speaking of ad tech, Julia, here we are on top of that. They're the third rate ads that would never air during a primetime airing in the year of our Lord, 2023. How on earth are streaming commercials this bad? If linear TV is collapsing and streaming is now, why are we still stuck with the same streaming advent inventory from 2014? Love to your mothers, Casey. This is ad tech, right? This is, this is who's selling the ads. Are you getting yeah. the premium ads? Do you have enough of an ad? It could also be, are they targeted in case he's in a weird demographic or a weird location? And so they're not getting the prime ads here. But like this is this all comes back to a thing that we don't really think about a lot, which is, you know, Internet video ad tech and what are the ads and how are they being sold and how are they being fulfilled and who are their clients? And I see streamers that have very good ads on them. And then I see streamers that have very terrible ads on them. I've seen them all. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when we're talking about Google here, right, kind of uh, king of terrible ads, uh, yeah. but but also king of well, being the advertiser these, uh middleman and these are youtube so it's it's youtube tv it sounds like right yeah. so youtube tv is is a vmpvd yeah. so it's a virtual cable company because i see this on fubo too and what they're doing yeah. is they're doing what is essentially a local cable roll-in ad yes. and the local cable ads are often really terrible because they're getting low rates because they're targeted to your geo they're targeted to where you live so i get the annoying like plumber ad from santa rosa and the annoying refrigerator salesman from pleasant hill and things like that because that those are it's essentially local cable ads yeah and those are they not also the don't have they also don't have rights to certain ads so that's why you'll see them kind of go offline for a minute and they're like there's yeah. an ad break we'll be right back and so the advertisers aren't on youtube it's it's yeah it's a yeah. complicated situation and um i assume that the people at google are kind of like eh. like like i mean it's ads that are doing their business and people who are using a virtual tv provider are going to be used to what a tv provider does but it is annoying and i do i do want ad tech to get better and i'm hoping that it will as more companies embrace it yeah i think it will definitely get better it has to it's funny because google is actually very good at this with youtube but youtube tv is a different product and it's it's not so much yeah. not so much uh this one's from jonathan it says Jason. Oh, it's to me. Hi, Jonathan. I'm a millennial born in the early 90s. I remember when many TV shows and sports were free over the air. I've never bought a cable subscription. We jumped straight to streaming during
during and after college. In today's world, is it worth investing in the antenna and tuner and software a la channels or Plex to roll your own TiVo style system to layer on top of what's available via streaming? What if it's just buying the antenna and tuner to hook directly to the TV? This is a very fun question. Um, I have a short ish answer to it, which is first off, we should, we should say, I believe if you are a Peacock subscriber, you get your local NBC channel. If you are a Paramount plus subscriber, you get your local CBS channel. So, um, you get some over the air already. Um, if you are a subscriber to those streamers, but yes, Jonathan, I think this is one of those underappreciated aspects of broadcast TV. Agreed. I, I live behind several ridges uh, that block the, uh, the the TV antenna from my house, so I can't do this. But if you live somewhere, especially flat, which the Bay Area is not, and you can put up rabbit ears or something on your roof and get a digital signal from your local broadcast channels, first off, that is going to be a super high quality HD picture. It's actually quite good because your cable company and the internet uh, streamers are really compressing the video at a level that your broadcast is not. But as you point out, there are other options. TiVo makes a box that will attach to that and record things. There are boxes that you can buy and attach to a computer. You mentioned channels and Plex. Those are uh, software packages that will run on a computer and basically take the thing and they turn themselves into TiVos, into DVRs, and they'll record the stuff that's coming off the over the air. If you've got over the air access and you're a cord cutter, you definitely, I think, should get an antenna. Maybe do the work to get it something that you can record and watch because that's just free TV. Um, certainly just attach it to your TV and, and, uh, for sporting events or elections or whatever, you've got that, you're breaking news. For example, you've got it right there and it's free. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of over the air is that it is completely free in other countries. They have similar things. I think UK has free view. Like it is a feature of our, uh, our company, our country, our, our, our society, that the airwaves are public and that they have to put certain things out over the airwaves. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're a cord cutter, what better to do than find another cord and attach it to an antenna? I say, that's my, that's my quick thing. I think it's totally worth it. If you can get, if you can get reception, I can only get like one channel and it's not worth it, but if you can get reception, you should totally do it. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Uh, one last question before we go. This is James. I haven't watched any Netflix in months, but I am still paying a monthly fee. Am I a net profit subscriber for Netflix? If I scream, if I stream Netflix 24 seven all month, am I a net cost subscriber? CapEx and OpEx were mentioned a few episodes ago. I think it's really interesting if my behavior matters when billions are being spent on content. If I'm unhappy with my ISP choices and service options, should I really be paying for Peacock and streaming it a lot? I This is amazing. And I, I Julia, what this like at its extreme, I really want to know the answer. And I'm not sure what the answer is here. Like if you watch all the Netflix or watch none of the Netflix, does it make Netflix isn't paying anything based on per stream, right? It's all buying the rights and then paying people out based on, I don't know, like, are you, are you costing Netflix money if you stream everything forever or does it not matter to them at all? Doesn't matter to them. I mean, it, it yeah. really, I was about to say the only. That's a bandwidth charges, in, but they're pretty light. <laughs> yeah. The only reason this would come into play and even then not really is the advertising tier where engagement matters more uh, but if you're a non-ad subscriber 
and you're paying them each month, like, great. Like, you're helping them create content. They don't care. They get to point to you in their earnings and say, look, we have so we, our churn is relatively low because people aren't using it, but they're not canceling. So they're still paying us. I was going to um, say it's 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 like, but it's actually exactly not like an all-you-can-eat uh, buffet because there's no cost. Essentially, they've already paid for if you if you empty out the the eggs or the the ham or whatever, they have to go put more in. Right. There is a cost to the food. But Netflix isn't like that. Netflix bought the content. The content is just there. You can watch all what, of it or none of it. and It doesn't matter what your streaming will tell them. And not just yours, but I think about this at a macro scale is if a bunch of people were streaming adult, you know, kind of animated cartoons then Netflix might say, is our level of supply matching our level of demand? And should we now invest mm. more into this because we can actually see active levels of consumption on the platform? Right. But one one person will never do that. No. And 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 also, like, even if there were a million people who were paying for Netflix uh, and were not necessarily engaged with it, it would still give Netflix an insane amount of money to go and further invest in what the active consumers were actively consuming. And what they would do is when they look at accounts like yours, where it's like, hmm, we've got a group of accounts that are not really active. And again, they're not looking at this per account. But if they're like, oh, these are, you know, higher risk subscribers because they're not really right. engaged with the content, they might say, okay, what are they interested in watching that we might be able to then invest in if this is happening at a large enough scale that we can bring some of these subscribers back. But it's it's really, at the end of the day, you're paying them. Wouldn't that be really interesting, though, to be like, what is a profile of somebody who only watches Netflix for three hours a month? Like, like, what are they watching? Because like, there's something there of like, what's what's keeping them? Of course. That's <laughs> what, I mean, that's like, that's the, can, that's the content. And how do we keep them from churning? Because they're the most at risk. Exactly. I mean, that is literally the like content strategy team. That is like their thing. That's like, OK, what it. are people watching at a scale? What are they not watching? What are we going to what are we right. losing people on? And then the question that they can't answer which is where a company like Mike, like our company, Parrot Analytics, comes in is, okay, where are we losing these customers to? So if James is watching three hours a month on Netflix and he's spending 90 hours a month somewhere else, what are we losing him to that we don't have? Right. And so that's kind of where we step in. Uh, but yeah, Love those it. are like everything you're asking, James, is like those are the questions that very well paid people at Netflix on their strategy, content strategy analysis team try to figure out. Good job, James. Well done. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you do have a question for us for our letters and the sports corner letters and regular letters and all of that, downstreamfeedback.com is where to go. Love to your mothers. We love hearing from you. If you haven't yet, also please consider subscribing to Downstream Plus. This was a full size, and I mean that, episode for everybody out there. But the only way to hear the complete version of our next episode and our previous episode is to subscribe. Go to downstream.plus to subscribe and support the show. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at parrotanalytics.com, at puck.news. She's Loudmouth Julia on Twitter. She may be on threads again at some point now that they have a web <laughs> version. Who knows? You can find me at sixcolors.com. I'm on many other podcasts here at Real FM. And uh, I am Jay Snell at Zeppelin.flights on Mastodon. If you want to find me there, I'm also Jay Snell on Twitter, but I, all I do is read things about sports now. <laughs> so don't go there. <laughs> uh, and maybe I'll be on threads, but I'm not really there now. Anyway, there's all, it's flux happening in the, in the social media sphere. Anyway, we will be back next time. We're recording two episodes at once. So send in your feedback. There's going to be a lot of sports in there for all of September. But until then, Julia, say goodbye. Send your sports questions. Goodbye. Sports corner <laughs> questions. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>